Chapter 10. The Sacrament of Remembrance. As my Father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint one for you, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Luke 22, 29-30. 1. With the proclamation of the angelic glorification, Holy, 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 the prayer of thanksgiving finds its fulfillment as the ascent of the church to heaven, to the throne of God, to the glory of the heavenly kingdom. But here, at this height, from this fullness of divine communion, knowledge and joy, the prayer of thanksgiving, while embracing all creation, the entire world, visible and invisible, while manifesting the church as heaven on earth, realizes itself, as it were, in the remembrance of one event, the last supper which Christ performed with his disciples on the night in which he gave himself up to suffering and death. Here is this part of the Eucharistic prayer, the so-called remembrance, anamnesis, in liturgical science, in the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, with these blessed powers, O Master, who lovest mankind, we also cry aloud and say, Holy art thou, and all holy, thou and thine only begotten Son. Holy art thou, and all holy, and magnificent is thy glory, who hast so loved thy world as to give thine only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who, when he had come and had fulfilled all the dispensation for us, in the night in which he was given up, or rather, gave himself up for the life of the world, took bread into his holy, pure, and blameless hands. And when he had given thanks and blessed it and hallowed it and broken it, he gave it to his holy disciples and apostles, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, for the remission of sins. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you and for many, for the remission of sins. Remembering this saving commandment, and all those things which have come to pass for us, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven, the sitting at the right hand, and the second and glorious coming, thine own of thine own we offer unto thee on behalf of all and for all. What is the meaning of this remembrance? Its place not only in the prayer of thanksgiving, but also in the totality of the divine liturgy, which is accomplished and fulfilled through this prayer? 2. Despite hundreds of treatises written in response to this question, neither academic theology nor liturgical studies have given, alas, a satisfactory answer. Here we see yet again the insufficiency of the method that I have already spoken of many times, which consists in the dismemberment of the Eucharistic prayer, and essentially even the whole liturgy into parts, which are then studied and explained outside of their connection with the other parts, without relating them to the whole. And this insufficiency is particularly obvious precisely in explanations of the Eucharist as remembrance, for here it becomes clear to what degree the reductionism inherent to this method narrows and then ultimately distorts the understanding not only of this moment itself, but of the entire sacrament of the Eucharist as well. We need to dwell on these reductions, which for hundreds of years now have been perceived as seemingly self-evident, for, in the first place, without overcoming them, we cannot break through to the genuine meaning embedded in the very experience of the Church, of the Eucharist as the sacrament of remembrance.
The first of these reductions consists in the understanding and definition of remembrance as a consecratory reference to Christ's establishment at the Last Supper, of the sacrament of the Eucharist, in other words, the transformation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. The power of this transformation, the actuality of the sacrament, is attributed here to the remembrance. The remembrance is the cause of the actuality of the sacrament, just as the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper is the cause of the actuality of the commemoration itself. We find such reduction in its pure form in the Latin doctrines of the transubstantiation of the Eucharistic gift through the words of institution of Christ. In other words, the words he pronounced at the Last Supper, and which the priest repeats while performing the sacrament, This is my body, this is my blood. But inasmuch as these words are defined as consecratory and consequently both necessary and sufficient for the sacrament, the Eucharistic commemoration of the Last Supper is essentially reduced to them. This reduction, in such an extreme form, is rejected both by Orthodox and Protestant theologians. But it is rejected, however, precisely and only as an extreme. For its main point, the reduction of the commemoration to the institution remains the singular and, I repeat, seemingly self-evident context for the explanation of this part of the Eucharistic prayer. In the Orthodox East, for example, in spite of the fact that our theologians unanimously affirm that it is not the words of institution but the epiclesis, the invocation of the Holy Spirit that accomplishes the transformation of the gifts, a special isolation precisely of the words of institution long ago was introduced and practiced everywhere. So during the celebrant's generally accepted secret, in other words, to himself, reading of the prayer of thanksgiving, only these words, and not the words of the epiclesis, are pronounced aloud. So during their pronouncement, the celebrant, or the deacon, points his hand first at the bread, and then at the cup, as if to emphasize the particularity, the exclusivity of precisely this moment. And finally, at the pronouncement of each of the two formulas of institution, over the bread and over the cup, the assembly answers with a solemn Amen, a word that in worship always has precisely a consecratory meaning. As far as Protestant theology is concerned, although it generally dismisses only objective change of the Eucharistic gifts as needless and somewhat magical, and places the reality of the change in dependence not on liturgical formulas and rites, but on the personal faith of the communicant, this very dismissal takes place within entirely the same reduction, for it applies the question not to the link between the Last Supper and the Eucharist as such, but to the actualization, the reality of this link in the Church. In what does the insufficiency, the harmfulness of this approach consist? For what reason do we define it as a reduction? Because, of course, the endlessly important, for our faith, for our life, question of the Eucharistic commemoration of the Last Supper, and hence of the connection of the Eucharist with the Last Supper, is brought down in this approach to a question of how, not what, of how the institution of the Last Supper operates in the Eucharist, but not of what Christ accomplished through this last act of his earthly ministry before his betrayal, cross, and death. In other words, the reduction here consists in the substitution of the chief question with a derivative one. This substitution was derived, without any doubt, in connection with another, far more profound reduction, 
which although it issues from the same dismembering method, concerns the theological source no longer of just the Eucharist, but the entire saving work of Christ. It is the identification, inherent to scholastic theology in all its variants, of the sacrifice that Christ offered for us and for our salvation with Golgotha, with the cross, suffering, and death. To be sure, according to the Church's teaching, in the Eucharist the Church proclaims the Lord's death, confesses His resurrection. To be sure, the connection of Golgotha with the Last Supper, accomplished by Christ before He suffers, Luke 22.15, and thus of the sacrifice of Golgotha with the Eucharist, is indisputable. School theology, however, reduces its interpretation of the Eucharist almost exclusively to it. According to this interpretation, Christ established the Eucharist at the Last Supper as a sacramental commemoration of his sacrificial immolation on the cross, the taking on himself of the sin of the world, which is redeemed by him through his suffering and death. Offered once on Golgotha, this sacrifice is eternally actualized in the Eucharist, on our altars, since on our behalf and for us it has been offered and is offered. As is well known, such a sacramental identification of the Last Supper and the Eucharist with the sacrifice of Golgotha led the Protestants to the general repudiation of the sacrificial character of the Eucharist as incompatible with the doctrine of the singularity, unrepeatability, and sufficiency of the sacrifice offered by Christ, once and for all. Among us Orthodox, it became entrenched in our school theology, albeit without the extremes inherent to the Latin prototype of this interpretation, and in part affected the very rites and prayers of the liturgy. But above all, to a significant degree, it colored the symbolical interpretations of the liturgy, of which I have spoken repeatedly in the first chapters of this investigation. What we ultimately need to say of these reductions is that they have led, both in theology and in the very liturgical life of the Church, to an almost total rupture between the teaching on the Eucharist as sacrifice and the doctrine of it as being the sacrament of partaking of communion. In our school theology, these two doctrines have simply coexisted, as it were, but without any interconnection. As far as our liturgical practice, which undoubtedly reflects the theology, is concerned, we perceive the Eucharistic sacrifice and the Eucharistic communion in two completely different keys. Thus, for example, as both theologians and pastors and even directors of the spiritual life have taught the faithful, one can, and it appears even that one must, take part in the Eucharist sacrifice while not partaking of communion, by being present, by prayer, by offering prosphora, by receiving the antiteron, or even by simply requesting one or several liturgies. This is possible because in the consciousness and piety of church people, communion has for a long time not been linked to the Eucharist as sacrifice, but has been subordinated entirely to another law, the law of individual spiritual needs, sanctification, help, consolation, etc., and correspondingly to the question of personal preparedness or unpreparedness. All these reductions, I repeat, have their origin and are rooted in a theology, in a liturgical science, which takes as its basis for the study and interpretation of the Eucharist not the lex orandi, not the rule of the Church's prayer in all its integrity, where all the parts that comprise the Eucharistic celebration are subordinated one to another, but on the contrary, its dismemberment in the name of a priori criteria, 
in other words, criteria located outside the Eucharist itself, outside its self-witness. 3. To be fair, one must recognize that over the past decades there has occurred a significant and in general positive thrust in the study of the Eucharist. This was furthered, on the one hand, by the so-called liturgical movement, with its intense focus on the earthly, pre-scholastic understanding of the place of the Eucharist in the Church, and, on the other, by the new, deepened study of the link between the Christian liturgical tradition and its Jewish roots. The works of such scholars as Dom Gregory Dix, Oscar Coleman, Joachim Jeremias, and Jean Donalou, and many others, has broadened our knowledge of the religious forms of later Judaism, within which Christianity and the Church were born, and the preaching of the Gospel, the good news of the coming into the world for its salvation of the Messiah promised by God, and the fulfillment in him of all the prophets, all that was promised, began to be proclaimed. Thus we now know that, along with its absolute singularity, the Last Supper was in its form, a traditional religious meal with prescribed rites and prayers, and that Christ fulfilled all these prescriptions. And we likewise know that these prescriptions, this form, precisely because Christ fulfilled them, referred them to himself, to his own saving work, became the original, fundamental form of the Church, her self-witness, her fulfillment in the world. This knowledge itself, however, no matter how useful and necessary, cannot give us the complete answer to the question we posed at the beginning of this chapter, of the meaning of the commemoration of the Last Supper, which from the beginning constituted an inalienable part of the prayer of thanksgiving. Moreover, now that historical investigation has helped free us from the scholastic reduction, we are now threatened with a new, this time historical, reduction. This latter consists in the conscious or unconscious conviction that the historical method is capable by itself of revealing the meaning and content of the Eucharist, and also that it alone can realize this. In contemporary historicism, inasmuch as it pretends to fullness of knowledge, but alas only pretends to it, we are thus dealing with the same rationalism as in the case of the scholastics. In other words, with the certainty that human reason in itself possesses a guarantee of its infallibility. But need we once again demonstrate that no kind of history, even the most scientific, is ever in the end free of presuppositions, but always, both in its questions and in its answers, depends on the convictions, even if they are often unconscious, of the questioner, in other words, the historian. As far as Christianity is concerned, the best demonstration of this is the conglomeration of scientific historical interpretations of the early church. Her faith and her life, which marked the era of the triumph of historicism, its triumph precisely as a reduction, for it is precisely seeing it as such a reduction that explains the fact that each of these theories, self-assuredly proclaiming itself as the last word of science, was soon debunked by its successor, which was just as self-assured and just as doomed. Therefore, unreservedly acknowledging the full, indisputable use and, moreover, absolute necessity of historical research into liturgical theology, which I wrote of with, I hope, sufficient clarity in my Introduction to Liturgical Theology, I consider the lowering of the liturgy to a history of the worship services, which replaced the earlier imprisonment of theological scholasticism, to be wrong and harmful. 
I am convinced, for example, that this historical reduction explains, in the first place, the helplessness, confusion, and discordance of the liturgists in the face of the profound liturgical crisis that has erupted within Christianity in our day. It is as if they have nothing to say to the liturgical experiments of every description that are carried out with the aim of bringing the services closer to the needs, ideas, and even demands of the contemporary world, or simply put, dissolving them into contemporary life. They have nothing to say precisely because by dissolving worship into history in the first place, they supplied the means for its dissolution in contemporary life today. They have stripped of meaning the very question of the eternal and unchanging essence of the liturgy, of its significance for the church, for man, for the world, and at the same time they have prompted a sterile, liturgically illiterate integrism in reaction against all these experiments. 4. All this needed to be said in order to again justify this time in relation to the Eucharistic remembrance the method that lies at the basis of this entire investigation and which, in my deepest conviction, is the only one that corresponds to and answers both the essence and the goal of liturgical theology. We must seek the complete answer to the question of the meaning of this commemoration, of the meaning of the liturgy as the sacrament of remembrance. In the Eucharist itself, and this means in the continuity, in the identity of that experience, not personal, not subjective, but precisely ecclesial, which is incarnated in the Eucharistic celebration and is fulfilled each time the Eucharist is celebrated. We must most strongly stipulate that the integral answer does not stand for the whole answer, all the knowledge that it reveals. It is not given us to know the whole answer to any genuine question, and this is not only because of our limitations, but also because of the inexhaustibility of the depths of the divine mystery, of the divine economy concerning the world and man, and thus the inexhaustibility of our seekings, our questionings, both here on earth and in eternity as well. Indeed, here and now in this earthly life, we are called to participation in the heavenly mystery, to communion with heaven, but all the more our knowledge is still only partial, for our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect, but when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. 1 Corinthians thirteen ten through 9 and 12. But here the entire depth the entire joy of the Christian faith and the whole experience of the church lies in the fact that this partly stems from the whole. It is referred to it. It witnesses to it. It shines with its light and functions through its power. If we are not given in this world to know the entire answer, then in the church, which is in this world but not of this world, we have been granted the way of the full approach to it, a growth into it. This way is in the entrance into the experience of the church and in partaking of it above all in the sacrament of sacraments, in which each time the church performs it, even if no one is ever able to wholly perceive it, the fullness of this experience is granted. And it is precisely this contact with it that gives birth in us to the desire to always more truly, more fully, more integrally, more perfectly partake of it and comprehend it.
5. The first thing that is revealed to us about the liturgical remembrance of the Last Supper in the light of the Eucharistic experience is precisely that, being a part of a thanksgiving, it not only is inseparable from the thanksgiving, not isolated from it, but only in reference to it, within it, is its true meaning disclosed to us. We already know that, through thanksgiving, the meaning of the Eucharist as the ascent of the Church to the heavenly altar, as the sacrament of the kingdom of God, is fulfilled. We likewise know that the entire liturgy, through its successive self-realization as the sacrament of assembly, sacrament of entrance, sacrament of the word, sacrament of offering, and, finally, sacrament of thanksgiving, is oriented toward this ascent. We know, finally, that in this sense the whole liturgy is a remembrance of Christ. It is all a sacrament and experience of his presence, of the Son of God, who came down from heaven, and was incarnate, that he might in himself lead us up to heaven. He gathers us as the church. He transforms our gathering into an entrance and ascent. He opens our mind to the hearing of his word. He, as the offerer and the offered, makes his offering ours and ours his. He fulfills our unity as unity in his love, and, finally, through his thanksgiving, which has been granted to us, he leads us up to heaven. He opens to us access to his Father. What can all this mean except that the remembrance into which thanksgiving now converts itself, having attained this goal, having through itself fulfilled the ascent of the church to heaven, is the very reality of the kingdom, which we are precisely able to remember, and thus comprehend as real, as present in our midst, because Christ manifested it and appointed it then on that night at that table. As my Father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint one for you, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Luke twenty-two, twenty-nine through 30 In the night of the fallen world, enslaved to sin and death, the Last Supper manifested the otherworldly divine light of the kingdom of God. Here is the eternal meaning and the eternal reality of this singular event, which can be compared with and reduced to no other. The Eucharistic experience of the Church discloses precisely this meaning of the Last Supper. The Church apprehends it as her own ascent to the heavenly reality which Christ has manifested and granted once and for all time on earth at the Last Supper. And when, approaching for communion, we pray, Of thy mystical supper, O Son of God, accept me today as a communicant, this identification of what is accomplished today with what was accomplished then is real, and precisely in the full meaning of the word, for today we are gathered in the same kingdom, at the same table where then, on that festal night, Christ was present among those whom he loved to the end. He loved them to the end. John 13.1 In the Eucharistic experience and in the Gospels, the Last Supper is the end, telos, in other words, the completion, the crowning, the fulfillment of Christ's love, which constitutes the essence of all his ministry, preaching, miracles, and through which he now gives himself up as love itself. From the opening words, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, Luke 22.15, to the exit to the Garden of Gethsemane, everything at the Last Supper, the washing of the feet, the distribution to the disciples of the bread and the cup, the last discourse, 
is not only concerned with love, but is love itself. And thus, the Last Supper is the telos, the completion, the fulfillment of the end. For it is the manifestation of that kingdom of love, for the sake of which the world was created, in which it has its telos, its fulfillment. Through love, God created the world. Through love, he did not abandon it when it fell into sin and death. Through love, he sent his only begotten son, his love, into the world. And now, at this table, he manifests and grants this love as his kingdom, and his kingdom as abiding in love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. John 15.9 6. Such is the answer of the liturgy itself, of the Eucharistic experience of the Church, to the first of the reductions that we pointed out, which explains the Eucharistic commemoration of the Last Supper as a reference to the institution of the sacrament, and by the same token reduces this very institution to the granting to the Church of the authority and power to transform the bread and wine of the Eucharistic offering into the body and blood of Christ. It is precisely in the light of what has been said that this interpretation's entire insufficiency, its entire incompatibility with the experience of the Church is revealed. The insufficiency is not that this interpretation affirms the reality of the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharistic gifts, but that it excludes what, by its being cut off from the integral experience of the Church, it does not see, it does not hear, and thus it does not know. And it excludes what is precisely the main thing, the Eucharistic knowledge in the Last Supper of the ultimate manifestation of the kingdom of God, and thus of the beginning of the Church, her beginning as the new life, as the sacrament of the kingdom. At the same time, it is precisely in Christ's transformation at the Last Supper of the end into the beginning, the Old Testament into the new, that we may find the essence of what we denote with the poor and feeble term institution, a word that by its sound alone draws us downward to a juridical, purely institutionalized reduction. At the Last Supper, Christ did not institute any authority or right to transform bread and wine. He instituted the church. He instituted his kingdom, appointed for his disciples all who believe through their words as abiding in his love. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. This commandment is new, entirely new, because it is Christ himself, the very love of God, who is granted to us in order that we may love one another through it, even as I loved you, that you also love one another. John thirteen thirty four, And this new covenant in Christ, the love of God, is the church. Yet the institution of the Eucharist did occur at the Last Supper, not as another institution separate from the institution of the Church, for it is the establishment of the Eucharist as the sacrament of the Church, her ascent to heaven, of her self-fulfillment at the table of Christ in his kingdom. The Last Supper, the Church, and the Eucharist are linked, not through an earthly cause-and-effect connection to which an institution is so often lowered, but through their common and single referral to the kingdom of God, which is manifested at the Last Supper, granted to the Church and remembered in its presence and actuality in the Eucharist. Therefore, 
finally only in relation to this link, to its fulfillment, its actuality, is the genuine meaning of the most profound and joyous mystery of our faith, the transformation in the Eucharist of our gifts into the body and blood of Christ revealed to us. And this mystery we shall be presently speaking of in the following chapter as the sacrament of the Holy Spirit. 7. Before this, however, we must dwell on the answer given by the Eucharist itself, by the Eucharistic experience of the Church to the second reduction, the identification of the commemoration of the Last Supper with the commemoration of Christ's suffering and death on the cross, and hence the interpretation of the Eucharist as the sacrament above all of the sacrifice on Golgotha. Let us say immediately that the link between the Last Supper and Christ's voluntary suffering, which lies at the foundation of this reduction, was never doubted by the Church and is attested to not only by her entire liturgical tradition, but first of all by the Gospel itself. According to the Gospels, Christ purposefully accomplished the Last Supper before he suffered, Luke 22.15, and knowing that his hour had come, John 13.1. He continued and completed his farewell discourse with his disciples, in which he gave them his new commandment, and which began while still at the supper, on the road to the garden of Gethsemane. Rise, let us go hence. John 14.31 So that this very parting, the ascent to the cross, was manifested to us as the completion of the Last Supper. And the Eucharistic prayer itself, I repeat, which invariably links the commemoration of the Last Supper with the commemoration of the cross, witnesses to this connection. Thus, we speak not of this link in and of itself, but of its theological interpretation. Does all that was said about it justify the approach to the Eucharist that sees and interprets the Eucharistic remembrance as a means to the sacramental actualization of the sacrifice on Golgotha? And is the understanding that ensues from this approach of the Last Supper as an act by which Christ, before his passion, in prevision of his sacrifice on Golgotha, made a prototype of it, establishing its sacramental form, in order that the saving fruits of this sacrifice could always be fed to the faithful in the sacrament, correct? In the light of all that has been said above about the Eucharistic experience and knowledge of the Last Supper, we not only can, but must answer no to these two questions. This approach is wrong, wrong in that it is determined precisely by the isolation of the Eucharistic commemoration and its severance from the wholeness of the liturgical celebration, which, as we have seen, is entirely oriented to the commemoration, entirely leading to it as its consummation. Actually, the whole meaning, the entire endless joy of this commemoration, is precisely that it remembers the Last Supper not as a means, but as a manifestation, and even more than a manifestation, as the presence and gift of the very goal, the kingdom for which God created the world, to which he called and foreordained mankind, and in which, in these latter days, he manifested in his only begotten Son, the kingdom of the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, and the Holy Spirit's gift of this love to the faithful, I in them, and thou in me, that they may become perfectly one, that the love with which thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. John seventeen twenty three through 26 We call the Last Supper an ultimate event because, being the manifestation of the goal, it is the manifestation of the end. 
this end, the kingdom of God, is not of this world, and thus is otherworldly, though its manifestation is accomplished in this world. I am no more in the world, Christ said at the Last Supper, John 17.11. And because he is no longer in the world, the glory he manifested and gave to his disciples on that night, at the table, the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, John 17.2, is also not of the world. With the Last Supper, Christ's earthly ministry was completed, and Christ himself witnessed to this in his farewell discourse and high priestly prayer. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and in him God is glorified. John 13.31 I glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work which thou gavest me to do. John 17.4 But then everything that Christ accomplished after the Last Supper, and that the Eucharistic prayer commemorates after it, is revealed in this prayer and in the faith and experience of the Church as a consequence of this manifestation of the kingdom, as its first decisive and saving victory in the world and over the world. 8. Christ was crucified by this world, by its sin, its evil, its struggle against God. In earthly history, in our earthly time, the initiative of the cross belongs to sin, just as it belongs to it even today. In each of us, when through our sins we crucify the Son of God on our own account, and hold him up to contempt. Hebrews 6.6 6. If the cross, an instrument of a shameful execution, has become the most holy symbol of our faith, hope, and love, if the church never tires of glorifying its unfathomable and unconquerable power, of seeing in it the beauty of the universe and the healing of creation, of witnessing that through the cross joy has come into all the world, it is because, of course, through that same cross, which incarnated the very essence of sin as theomachy. This sin was overcome, because through the death on the cross, death, which had reigned in the world and would appear to have achieved its ultimate victory, was itself destroyed. And finally, because from the depths of this victory of the cross radiated the joy of the resurrection. But what transformed the cross and eternally transforms the cross into victory, if not the love of Christ, the same divine love that, as the very essence and glory of the kingdom of God, Christ manifested and granted at the Last Supper? And where, if not at the Last Supper, do we find the consummation of the faith, complete self-sacrifice of this love, which in this world made the cross, betrayal, crucifixion, suffering, and death, unavoidable? The Gospels of the Church services, particularly the wonderfully profound services of Passion Week, witness precisely to this link between the Last Supper and the cross, to their connection as the manifestation and victory of the kingdom of God. In these services, the Last Supper is always referred to that night that surrounds it on all sides, and in which particularly clearly shines the light of the festival of love that Christ accomplished with his disciples in the large upper room furnished, as if prepared in advance from all ages." This was the night of sin, night as the very essence of this world. And here it thickens to the limit. It prepares to devour the last light shining in it. Already the princes of the people are assembled together against the Lord and his Christ. And already the thirty silver pieces, the price of betrayal, are paid. Already the crowd, incited by their leaders, 
armed with swords and spears, are heading out on the road leading to the Garden of Gethsemane. But, and this is infinitely important for the church's understanding of the cross, the Last Supper itself took place under the shadow of this darkness. Christ knew the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Luke 22.21 And it was precisely from the Last Supper, from its light, that Judas, after taking the morsel, John 13.27, went out into that dreadful night, and soon after him Christ. And if in the services of the Holy Thursday, the day of the express commemoration of the Last Supper, joy is all the time interlaced with sadness, if the church again and again recalls not only the light, but also the darkness overshadowing it, it is because, in the double exits of Judas and of Christ from that light into that darkness, she sees and knows the beginning of the cross as the mystery of sin and the mystery of victory over it. The mystery of sin. Judas's exit is the limit and completion of that sin whose origin is in paradise and whose essence lies in the falling away of human love from God, in choosing through this love oneself and not God. All of the life, all of the history of the world, as the fallen world, as this world, which lies in evil as the kingdom of the prince of this world, begins with this falling away and is inwardly determined by it. And now, in the exit of Judas, apostle and betrayer, this history of sin, blind, twisted, devoid of love, which had become thievery, for it had stolen life which was given for communion with God, for itself approaches its end. For the mystically terrible meaning of this exit is that Judas also left paradise. He took flight from paradise. He cast himself from it. He was at the Last Supper. Christ washed his feet. He took into his hands the bread of Christ's love. Christ gave himself to him in this bread. He saw, he heard, he felt the kingdom of God with his own hands. And here, like Adam, fulfilling Adam's primordial sin, taking the entire horrible logic of sin to its limit, he did not want this kingdom. In Judas, the theomachistic desire, the fallen love of this world, proved the more powerful. And this desire, on the strength of all its horrible logic, could not but be, consequently inevitably, for the murder of God. After the Last Supper, Judas had nowhere to go but into the darkness of deicide. When it was done, and this desire, and through it his living life was exhausted, Judas would have nowhere to go but into self-annihilation and death. The Mystery of Victory In Christ, who through his self-sacrifice manifested his kingdom and its glory at the Last Supper, this very kingdom appeared in the night of this world. After the Last Supper, Christ also had nowhere greater to go than to this encounter, to the deadly duel with sin and death, because these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the prince of this world, could not simply coexist, because it was in order to destroy the dominion of sin and death, to return his creation, stolen from him by the devil, to himself, to save the world that God gave his only begotten Son. Thus Christ condemned himself to the cross with the Last Supper, with the manifestation in it of the kingdom of love. Through the cross, the kingdom of God, which was secretly manifested at the supper, enters into this world, and through this entrance becomes struggle and victory. 9. Such is the knowledge 
such is the original experience of the cross in the church as witnessed by her entire liturgical tradition and above all by the eucharistic remembrance as the prayer of thanksgiving continues remembering this saving commandment and all those things which have come to pass for us the cross the tomb the resurrection on the third day the ascension into heaven the sitting at the right hand and the second glorious coming this enumeration in which let us emphasize the cross is not isolated from or contraposed to the other events but constitutes together with them as it were one ascending series is a commemoration of a single victory gained in christ by the kingdom of god over this world the victory which is realized however in a succession of victories each finding its fulfillment in the next is the action of the victorious progress toward that end which christ delivers the kingdom to god the father when god shall be all in all first corinthians fifteen twenty four and twenty eight the sacrificial love of christ the single sacrifice integrally offered by christ through all these victories unites them together transforms them into a single victory here in relation to this single and all-encompassing sacrifice of christ is disclosed the harmfulness of the identification inherent in the dismembering school theology of the sacrifice that christ offered for us only with the sacrifice and death on the cross this harmfulness is rooted of course in the first place in the one-sided juridical understanding of the very idea of sacrifice as an atoning act correlative to evil and sin as their experience and thus an act that according to its very essence demands suffering and ultimate death this understanding however and we have already spoken of this in the chapter devoted to the eucharist as the sacrament of offering is precisely one-sided and in its one-sidedness false in its essence sacrifice is linked not with sin and evil but with love it is the self-revelation and self-realization of love there is no love without sacrifice for love being the giving of oneself to another the placing of one's life in another the perfect obedience to another is sacrifice if in this world sacrifice is actually and inevitably linked with suffering it is not in accordance with its own essence but in accordance with the essence of this world which lies in evil whose essence lies in the falling away from love we spoke of all this earlier and there is no need for us to repeat it here what is important for us now is that in the eucharistic experience of the church in the experience of the eucharist as sacrifice this sacrifice embraces christ's entire life his entire ministry or better still it is christ himself for christ is perfect love and therefore perfect sacrifice he is sacrifice not only in his saving ministry but above all in his eternal sonship his giving of himself in love and in perfect obedience to the father indeed we can without fear of falling into contradiction with the classic doctrine of the complete beatitude of god trace sacrifice to the very life of the trinity and even more so we can contemplate the very beatitude of god in the perfection of the all-holy trinity as the perfect self-giving of the father son and holy spirit to each other as perfect love and hence perfect sacrifice the son offers this eternal sacrifice to the father transforming it through obedience to the father into giving himself for the life of the world he offers it through his being made man taking on human nature 
and becoming for all eternity the Son of Man. He offers it in receiving baptism from John and in taking on himself all the sin of the world. He offers it through his preaching and miracle working, and he fulfills this offering by manifesting and granting to his disciples at the Last Supper the kingdom of God, the kingdom of perfect self-renunciation, perfect love, perfect sacrifice. But because this offering is accomplished in this world, because it encounters from the very beginning the opposition of sin in all its manifestations, from the blood of the children slaughtered by Herod, from the unbelief and skepticism of the world, to the frenzied hatred of the scribes and Pharisees, this whole offering from the very beginning is the cross, the passion and its acceptance, the moral struggling and overcoming. It is crucifixion in the deepest sense of the word. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. This was said about the final struggle, the final exhaustion on the night of the betrayal at Gethsemane. But this very distress is the distress over the sin that surrounded Christ, and the troubling is over the loss of faith of his own, to whom he had come, been present for his entire life and his entire ministry. And it is not for nothing at all, on the Feast of Nativity, while preparing for the joyful celebration of the Incarnation, the Church performs a certain prefiguration of Passion Week, contemplating in this very joy the cross, inevitably inscribed in it from time immemorial. As the entire earthly ministry of Christ is the offering, in this world, for the sake of us men and for our salvation, of the entire sacrifice of love, so it is all, in this world, the cross. Completed as joy, as the gift of the kingdom of God at the Last Supper, his ministry is completed as struggle and victory on the cross. It is the same offering, the same sacrifice, the same victory. And finally, through the cross and as the cross, this offering, this sacrifice and victory is handed over and granted to us who live in this world. Because in this world, and above all in our very selves, it is only through the cross that the ascension into the joy and fullness of the kingdom appointed for us is accomplished. 10. Only through the cross, in reality, everything that I am endeavoring to say in this chapter, and not in it alone, but throughout this entire work, I deliberately say in feeble and insufficient words. About the essence of the church as ascension to heaven, into the joy of the kingdom of God, and of the Eucharist as the sacrament of this ascension. These very words about joy and fullness would be truly irresponsible words, were they not referred, through the church herself, in the Eucharist itself, to the cross, to the singular path of this ascent, to the means of our participation in it. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Galatians 6.14. Need we point out that in these words the Apostle Paul expresses the entire essence of the Christian life as the following after Christ? The world is crucified to me. If following after Christ is the reciprocal love to his love, the reciprocal sacrifice to his sacrifice, then in this world it cannot but be a spiritual feat of genuine renunciation of the world in its selfishness and pride, in its desire, as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, 1 John 2.16. I am crucified to the world, but this sacrifice cannot but be my crucifixion, 
For this world is not only outside of me, but above all in my very self, in the old Adam in me. Its mortal struggle with the new life granted to us by Christ never ceases in our earthly sojourn. In the world you have tribulation, John 16:33. Anyone who would in the smallest degree follow the path of Christ, love him and give himself to him, has this tribulation, recognizes this suffering. The cross is suffering, but through love and self-sacrifice, this same tribulation is transformed into joy. It is experienced as being crucified with Christ, as accepting his cross and hence taking part in his victory. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, John 16:33. The cross is joy, and no one will take your joy from you, John 16:22. The Eucharistic remembrance is the remembrance of the kingdom of God, which was manifested and appointed at the Last Supper. But the remembrance of the cross the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ poured out for us, is inseparable from it. This is why it is only through the cross that the gift of the kingdom of God is transformed into its reception, its manifestation at the Eucharist, in our ascent to heaven, in our partaking at the table of Christ in his kingdom. 11. The Sacrament of the Assembly, the Sacrament of Offering, the Sacrament of Anaphora, and thanksgiving, and finally, remembrance, are a single sacrament of the kingdom of God, of a single sacrifice of Christ's love, and therefore they are the sacrament of the manifestation, the gift to us of our life as sacrifice. For Christ took our life in himself and gave it to God. Man was created for the sacrificial life, life as love. He lost it, for there is no other life, in the falling away of his love from God. And Christ manifested this sacrifice as life, and life as sacrifice in the self-giving of his love. He granted it as assent to and partaking of the kingdom of God. We have a witness to and expression of this sacrifice, which in Christ becomes ours, and of its all-embracing fullness in the words that conclude the Eucharistic remembrance, Thine own of thine own we offer unto thee, on behalf of all and for all. Through these concluding words, the end is transformed into the beginning, into an eternal beginning, for it is the eternal renewal of everything which the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, manifests and fulfills through his coming.